Welcome to Beyond the Frontline Lessons from Healthcare Leaders podcast. This season, we are discussing the realities of healthcare leadership during a crisis. We are your hosts, Dr. Linya Yang and Dr. Shanita Johnson. Let's dive in. So excited to have Dr. Moran with us here today. Dr. Moran is the Vice President of Medical Affairs and Associate Chief Medical Officer at Maine Medical Center. He is soon to be the Chief Medical Officer of the 935-bed tertiary quaternary hospital. His other management roles and leadership roles include being a consultant at McKinsey, Division Director of Pediatric Cardiology, and Board Member of a Hospital. Welcome, Dr. Moran. Hi, how are you? Good, we're glad to have you today. And so we really wanted to touch base with you regarding your leadership, especially during a crisis. So season one is talking about healthcare leadership during a crisis. And we're gonna start here with a question from Dr. Yang. Hi, so thank you so much for joining us. The first kind of question that we both had was the pandemic caused a lot of health systems to make changes very quickly. So what changes did you have to implement at your health center or health system um, to assure that the healthcare of the patients that you serve? Yeah, Linya, I, <clears throat> I think that is undoubtedly probably the million dollar question, right? I, I think every institution, including at Maine Medical Center, had to undergo incredibly rapid um, change uh, across multiple of, of areas. Um, PPE, so personal protective equipment, education, I would say changes within the hospital environment, the office environment, the, the channels or ways we delivered care to patients. And I would say even, uh, even procedures, we weren't changing the type of, the way we were doing procedures, but we dramatically changed the type of procedures that we did. And then I, I think, you know, I mean, we're now two and a half years into the pandemic, but we also then, you know, then vaccines showed up and, and we had to think about how we would deliver and provide vaccination across the large community, both inpatient, outpatient. And so I, I think it's a staggeringly long list, um, but, but, you know, if, we, if I go back and think about the early part, I would say one of the biggest things I was involved with was, was um, providing and ensuring we had a steady supply of personal protective equipment. And to take the next part of it, what challenges did you think that you faced with the employee satisfaction and staffing at the same time? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, there's no doubt. Um, and, you know, if, if you go to business school, even if you try and make any change, change is incredibly hard for individuals. Um, I think that, especially when you're doing it in a crisis and you're doing it very quickly. I, I think a lot of people get very concerned. They get very worried. Rumor takes over. So you have to sort of dissect out the facts and, the, and what's actually happening with the rumors and really allay people's fears as that would happen. I think at the end of the day, being clear in explaining why you're introducing those changes. So you know, if, if you think way back, right, we weren't sure how the virus was spread. Was it airborne? Was it droplet? What kind of, of clothes you, you should wear? There are many stories, and we've all been through that, where you would come home and you would change in your garage. You would be sleeping in your dining room on a, on a blowout mattress because you wanted to protect your loved ones. 
but you were still committed to the work of caring for, the, for patients who were sick. Also think about like testing, we were doing PCR, we, then we introduced antigen tests, people thought they were the same, maybe they were different. So again, being very, very succinct and clear on, um, on what role each test has. Uh, and then um, even more recently, you know, when we had massive staffing issues, how do we get our staff back to work safely? And so the CDC is communicating about what to do in the community, but we're in a healthcare environment. So we actually have to sort of separate the two. And again, it's all about explaining, being succinct, saying it over and over again. You can't just assume everyone reads the email that's sent out. And I would say ground, grounding all of your recommendations in facts. So aligning them with the CDC, which unfortunately, they were changing just as quickly as we were. So, you know, the, the keeping up and, and explaining to people why you were, things had changed because we got new insights and new information. Obviously now things have calmed down and we're in a better place. Um, but, but I think those, you know, whether it's COVID or whether it's some other crisis or some other situation, um, succinct, clear understanding of why you're doing it and communicating it over and over again um, to everybody at the bedside, to the leaders so that they can communicate to their direct reports. You know, as we talk about employee satisfaction and physician satisfaction, it brings to mind that the U.S. Surgeon General is on a tour of the U.S. looking at hospitals and specifically looking at healthcare worker burnout. Have you noticed that in your role as Associate CMO? And if so, what have you implemented for this or to combat this? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think, you know, we're, we're our, at the core of our mission, whatever institution you're in is to care for patients. But it's followed now by close second, which is caring for the staff. And so, you know, if you maintain those two anchor points, I think what you do uh, will always be the right thing. Um, our staff, I think like everybody else, I mean, everybody's tired. So even if you're not in healthcare and you meet your friends, no one wants to talk about the pandemic. No, people just want to get their basic simple lives back in place. And, and so we, we had a reasonably robust um, wellness program, both for physicians slash APPs on our provider side, and also for you know, patient care services, patient care support services. So nurses, allied health workers. Um, I don't think you could ever do enough, but I think it, one acknowledging what the issues are. Um, again, um, you know, some of the early things that we did was um, when you're on quarantine, when you're out sick, you receive full pay. When we cut back on all of our elective procedures, we never changed the compensation of anybody. And we were fortunate enough that we didn't have to lay anybody off. Um, uh, other institutions may not have been in quite the same sort of healthy financial state, but I think that's a clear statement that you care for people. Um, we have various different um, individuals, whether it's trained providers, trained nurses, um, who 
are there to hear people, to listen to them, counselors. We now have an online um, resource for all of our employed staff and their family members so that they are actually allowed to call up um, psychologists and, and, and social workers to really talk through the pain points, whatever that is. And, and, and some of it's the trauma of seeing people die. Some of it's the trauma and, and the stress of dealing with really grieving family members who are in the various different five stages of grief. But if they're angry, they're going to take that out on you. And so we have in parallel with just dealing with pure COVID patients, We've also seen, obviously, the second pandemic, which is of behavioral health. And so we're seeing many, many troubled patients coming in across the entire spectrum of, of mental health, coming into our emergency room, striking out on, on, at, at, at care team members. And we had actually, and workplace violence, obviously, um, you know, in the recent past, we've unfortunately seen some so, so tragic, extreme um, events uh, within that both obviously in the hospital settings, but also beyond that in the school settings. So I, I think trying to give the skills to the workers um, who are caring for people, we had actually, we, we were fortunate, we had started a workplace violence initiative. So we had uh, insisted that all staff members um, that have any interactions with patients would, would, would have a foundational skill set of de-escalation and listening. And then depending on, on you know, the nurse in the emergency room has many layers of extra training, um, uh, both in, 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 in physically um, dealing with um, violent and troubled patients. Um, but, but, you know, if you're an EVS worker, you also have, have a core skill set that are, that are now in place. But I, 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 I go back to what I said earlier. I, I don't know if we can ever do enough. And I think we're going to see, um, you know, we see it with resignations. We see it with people going part-time. We're seeing it with people changing jobs. Some of it's because in their own personal lives, they want to get closer to family members. In others, they just want change. Um, but in others, they may or may not be feeling valued within the institution they're in and they want to go somewhere else. So um, I, I, think, um, I think we're going to see a lot more conversation around the provision of care for our care team members over the coming months to years. And, and I would say stay tuned. There's there's a, there's a lot of, um, of work that we do, which is how do we help the individual um, with, the, with what they can do, how we can change the environment, how we can make the work that they're doing a little easier. And those are sort of three major areas we focus on currently. Wow, that's wonderful that you all have put so much effort and thought behind it. It's a really robust program, as you mentioned. Um, and I'm sure it's doing a lot of good for everyone that works in your system. You mentioned a little bit about financial solvency, and I wanted to ask a little further into that. How did you help to establish or ensure financial solvency during the crisis? And then also, what about operational efficiency as well? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think every I think it in part depended on what you were like coming in. 
And so we have seen health, certain health systems where they're, you know, highly rated AA, S&P or Fitch. And you've seen others who were quote unquote junk bond status and really were like really on the fringes or very tenuous in their stability before they even had to deal with the pandemic. We were lucky in that we, Main Health, which is the health system I currently work in, um, we were in a pretty solid place. Obviously, our, our, our margins were very tight. And so when we say we're in a good place, our overall system margin was 1.52%, which allowed us to kind of reinvest within our mission as a nonprofit. <clears throat> we took the stance though, and I remember having this conversation with our CFO at, at the main hospital at Maine Med. He goes, look, we gotta care for our patients and we gotta care for our staff. And he goes, no matter what we do, we are gonna take a huge financial hit. And we did, and it's no different than everybody else. We we cleared the decks. We stopped doing what we would, you know, we call them elective procedures, but they're the non-urgent procedures that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. But because we we live in a very complex um, ecosystem of healthcare, we depend on those procedures to fund the other endeavors that we do to provide good care and holistic care for patients. So. We took a pounding. Now, however, we learned from that in that first six months, just like everybody else. And we said, look, this isn't going away as we had all hoped within weeks or months. We now have to learn to live with COVID as another illness that we care for. And, and I, I would point back to in the same way that people dealt with patients with rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease, or they dealt with tuberculosis within the United States or in Europe, we now will have a certain number of patients who will come in with COVID. Some of them will have true, we'll call it true COVID. They will have respiratory illness. They will be very sick. But there are others who are coming in who happen to have, or we call them incidental COVID. So they come in with an acute myocardial infarct, or they come in with a stroke, or they come in with small or large bowel obstruction, and they happen to have COVID. So now we're learning to live with it and, uh, and we're managing it differently. And so obviously we have restarted our, we'll call it our usual care. So our cardiac surgeries, not so, not so much the emergent and urgent ones, but the semi-elective mitral valve or the orthopedic case, we are now trying to get back to the volume of care that we deliver in our tertiary quaternary hospital. I guess the other thing is on the office side is that we, like, every, like many other people, pivoted very quickly. You can't come into the office. We're going to try and care for you in telehealth. And now we're trying to learn, you know, that works quite well if you're a psychiatrist, or maybe it works reasonably well if you're an endocrinologist, but you need the blood work to help care for the patient. It doesn't quite work as well if you're a surgeon and you actually have to do procedures, or it doesn't work well if you're a cardiologist and you need an echocardiogram because the patient has to physically come in for certain um, testing that then guides their therapy. So we're we're now trying to balance, you know, how we can deliver care either in the home 
um, in a telehealth visit asynchronously with what we call e-consults. So you ask a question and you have 20, 24 hours in which to answer it, but you do it using the technology we have or getting the offices open again and making sure that the office is comfortable if somebody comes in and they have respiratory symptoms. And I'll point to the pediatric colleagues of ours where pretty much during the winter, every kid that they're seeing has a runny nose and a cough and the parents probably have the same, but not everybody has COVID. So we cannot shut down that care. And we learned, the pediatricians told us, hey, you know what, we've got We've got all these kids that are falling behind in their immunizations. And so, you know, we are affecting their long-term well-being by not doing that. So I think those were the things that we can control. I think we were all very fortunate that the federal government also supported what we were doing. And so the federal stimulation or, or funds that came to support health systems um, were significant. And I would contend that uh, as you start to see um, the financial numbers come out in for Q1 and Q2 of this year, um, they are very concerning. And even though health systems are actually starting to, to get their procedures back, but now they're struggling with staffing and paying for travelers. Uh, and so one of the major costs of any health system is salaries uh, and wages. Uh, and, and we've learned that if, if, you're, if you're just skimming the treetops from the point of view of having a little bit more money left over at the end, once you've done what you are, are in the business of doing, which is caring for your community, <clears throat> um, any small change inflationary uh, as it is, has a dramatic impact and, it, and it's put almost every single health system into the red. Uh, and and I would say the final comment is a lot of health systems, we, we, we have alternative revenue streams um, and some health systems are a lot more mature than others in that. Most places now have retail pharmacy, though that, that seems like a good steady stream of income. Others really depend on the philanthropic donations and the investment income that came with that. And, if you pay any attention to your retirement accounts right now, you know that the S&P 500 is in the tank. And that means that the philanthropic funds are also in the red so that these health systems have had, um, they've had losses within their investment as well. So there, there are alternative revenue streams to support their nonprofit status and their, and their um their mission have really struggled. So I, I, I think we're in for a really tough time in the coming months, but, but those are the key things that we did to try and, and at least keep the boat still floating so that we could deliver the care we, we deliver. Wow, so there were so many moving parts throughout the entire, from the beginning and even now that you guys are having to, as a C-suite team to kind of pivot and change and consider and everything. So how were you able to bring the C-suite team together um, to meet those goals that were required? So I, I think at the core of this is we used our incident command center and um, it's quite humorous. If you look at our local newspaper at the very beginning when we were being we heard about this virus and a potential surge in cases. 
everybody's in the room, no one's wearing masks, we're all sitting next to each other. Within a week, we're all in masks. There's only the core um, appointed officers of the incident command in the room. But that really included our C-suite. So chief operating officer, chief medical officer. I was in charge of logistics. Our life safety um, person was there. And we had core, um, I call them the documenters. They, they record all the minutes. They make sure that everything is, um, is, is, is captured and the changes that we're doing on such a rapid basis. And then our marketing communications individual was always in the room. If we had to bring other people in, we would often zoom them in. And then eventually, depending on where we were in the search, we were either doing it on Zoom or we were doing it in our boardroom in our command center. But we met every day. We met um, Monday, seven days a week at the beginning. Then we went to five days a week. But, but that ensured that everybody knew what the core initiatives were. And we broke it down, whether it was supplies, I would report out on supplies. There was our, um, our medical experts included our hospital epidemiologist and our lead infection prevention. They talked about the current number of cases, what was going on in the community. Um, and so we sort of broke it into buckets. Life safety talked about um, the creation of negative pressure rooms um, our CMO talked about with the chief operating officer what elective procedures we were we were closing, what rooms were available in the OR, what wasn't available. Um, and then obviously there was the trickle-down communication. So um, we had physician support groups where I would participate or the CMO would participate. That happened two or three times a week. Each one of the chairs and chiefs were responsible for communicating the key points on a daily basis or twice a week, depending on what they felt the needs were. And the same was true. Chief nursing officer was in the room as well. And so he communicated out to his VP leads. And I think at the end of the day, um, that core group being fully informed and basically living and breathing what we were doing at the time was, was, was central to it. I also think um, us being physically in the building, listening, being accessible, um, you know, hearing where the concerning points were, whether it was in the emergency room, critical care, these were incredibly scared people who were doing unbelievable work with somewhat limited information. So I, I think all of those, having that core team, you know, they, they were already good colleagues and friends, but we became a lot closer by being there day in, day out. And we met two or three times a day just to make sure that everybody was clear and that whatever we were changing was happening as quickly as it possibly could. So it sounds like you were able to bring your team together. The team worked well um, during this, this entire time. There were different parts of the team that would go out to other parts of the entire organization, which I think was pretty crucial and everything. So for you, what made you interested in pursuing the healthcare leadership as a physician? And then with that, who, who do you consider as your mentors or experiences that helped you to transition from the administrative role to the leadership role? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, th I think it's, it's interesting. I think we all um, reflect on where we are in our stage in life. And, uh, and I would say, you know, I've been privileged and remain privileged to be a physician and to, you know, I've been fortunate enough to be incredibly well-trained and to be able to do what I do on a daily basis. But it's, it's also became clear to me over time that we work in a complex environment. We, you know, healthcare is a business in the United States. It's also a business in Europe, in the developed world. Um, but the business in most of Europe is the government controls the purse. And whereas in the United States, it's a little bit more free market um, within the policy constraints that we're in. But it was clear to me that <clears throat> to actually deliver the best quality of care and um, you have to do that in a team and the team has to be high functioning and and that's sort of where the interest started right so I wanted to make sure I, I was very lucky I, I did most of my residency and fellowship training at Boston Children's and the cardiac program there is world-class and the importance of the team was always there, even before people, I think, even realized that it, it, they were talking about team dynamics and how the team works. Um, I did something a little unusual when I took a sabbatical and worked at McKinsey. And that, that was another probably key point in turning point in, in this journey I'm on. Um, and it became my practical MBA. And I, I got, you know, I learned a different language. I learned not to be afraid of net present value or, you know, um, I, I don't know, you know, micro and macroeconomic principles. Um, but I also started to understand the softer side of change management, some of the stuff we talked about earlier. Um, that grew, I got invited, I went, I really missed taking care of patients. So I went back practicing, I got invited um, to Portland, Maine and ended up um, working in a in a uh, independent um, practice, not an employed group. So we were a small private group of pediatric cardiologists, which is pretty unusual in the United States. Uh, and because of my business background and time at McKinsey, I was asked ultimately pretty quickly to really be at the, at the forefront of, of how we ran our business. Uh, and then was the, was the face of our practice with the hospital. And so, um, Maine Medical Center introduced service lines pretty early on, maybe 12 to 14 years ago. So I was at the core of that. We were within the cardiovascular service line, which was a very large service line within the hospital. And we had our, like everybody, we have ups and downs clinically and operationally, but um, it, it gave me access to um, the chief medical officer at the time and the, the chief uh, executive officer, Rich Peterson, and Rich's door was always open to physicians and that sticks with me. And he was incredibly supportive of, um, you know, presenting and asking me to be involved in various different challenges. And I, I think it was because I came not with a problem, but I, if I had a problem, I would at least start to come with solutions to the problem. They may not have been the right ones because I didn't have that broader perspective. But I think he, the CMO, I think others started to appreciate that. And then I was, I was very lucky to be invited onto the board of trustees of the hospital for a four-year stint before I went into the role I'm in currently. 
Uh, I, I think the other part is you realize you need a certain skill set to function in this. And obviously, Shanita and Linya, you know this as well as I do because we took our MBA course together. Um, but that provides this core foundation or building blocks on which you can then work on. So you learn the hard stuff, the finance, um, the accounting principles, um, cost accounting, you learn about economics, but in parallel, you learn about how people think and how groups work together and change management, um, the quote unquote softer side, which is actually the harder side of what you do as leaders. Uh, and, and so I think all of those things together have led me to where I am today. I didn't expect four years ago, within a year, to um, you know find myself in in one of the hot seats, um, or should I say, with a voice at the table. But but having physicians at the table, especially when there are clinical issues um, at the core of what you're trying to do. And when I say physicians, I, I basically believe any care team member, like if you've taken care of patients, respiratory therapist, occupational therapist, nurse, physician, EPP, you get it. Now, I would also contend that you should never not practice when you're in those leadership roles. Um, so Jim Mandel was, you asked who kind of influenced me. Um, my mentor in pediatrics, Brendan Drum in, in Ireland, ultimately went on, and I would have never envisioned this, he went on to run the healthcare system in Ireland for a four-year period. And so at some level, he was thinking it, and that probably kind of filtered down to me. Jim Mandel was the person who said, always make sure you remain connected with patients, or otherwise you lose respect. I think Rich Peterson had a key role in giving me some opportunities. And I think, you know, Joel Butler, who's the CMO at Maine Medical Center, and Jennifer McCarthy, the chief operating officers, allowed me to grow beyond where I thought I would have grown within that four-year period. And that's allowed me to then, as you mentioned at the very beginning of this, take on another, you know, leadership role in Advocate Aurora's Health System in a few months. So you've said a lot here, Adrian, and you're carrying a lot. So how do you balance this? How do you balance this practice that you have just admonished us not to give up? So how do you balance that with healthcare leadership and really moving up the ranks to your next position, which may have more responsibility? Yeah, yeah I, I think it's hard, right? I mean, um, I, I think... I think what you have to do, so most of us, whether whether you're coming at it from primary care or you're coming at it from a specialty-based um, perspective, I think you have to slowly start to call what you do. So I am a pediatric cardiologist and general cardiologist. I no longer do fetals. I still do some advanced imaging, but over time, the scope of practice that I can do has to narrow down. But I think if, if you still see patients and you still work on an EMR and you still have to worry about the scheduling I, I, or you round on patients in the hospital, um, having just been on call this weekend, I, I think 
you quote unquote feel the pain that your colleagues who do it 100% of the time feel. Now you don't feel it the same, but they also don't appreciate the burden that you carry in your leadership role. Um, when they, some of them, they finish seeing the patients, they do their notes, they're done, they go home, you're an ED doc, you don't carry a beeper, your shift is over, you get your notes done, you go home and you can totally switch off. Um, I'm not sure I realized it, I kind of did. Um, I definitely know it now is you never can turn off when you're in a senior leadership role in a large organization. Now you have to surround yourself with very good people who cover for you because you do need personal time and time to, to re-energize and recharge and you know, commit time to your family, your loved ones, whoever, you know, whatever situation you find yourself in. Um, but it's not a nine to five job, uh, but neither is clinical care. And right now I've got 80% administrative executive and 20% clinical, I would say that that is 95% executive and 30% clinical, which obviously the math doesn't add up, but I totally get that. Um, but, but I say it slightly tongue in cheek to realize that, um, you know, when you go home and you, you, you know, decompress and, or you exercise or you have dinner with your family, you probably still have another 50 emails to read. Or at the weekend, you've got a document that you put aside that you really need to know inside and out because it's pertinent to some big decision that's being made. Uh, I also think, and this is, uh, I think a life journey of just trying to learn this, you cannot be in the weeds on everything anymore. So when you hear these great leaders saying surround themselves by really smart, good people, you, you're a fool not to do that because they make your work so much easier. And I've been incredibly fortunate in the last four years to have um, either stumbled by mistake, which I think is the most likely explanation, um, but uh, I've had some incredibly um, strong people work who directly report to me and without them I would be lost. Um, my only comment with that is you also have to support their own growth and you cannot hold them back because you're afraid of the extra work you will encum be encumbered by when they leave to, to better themselves. So succession planning and leadership needs to be built into that great team that you've built. Um, otherwise, um, you're in for even more hurt because at some stage they will leave and they should because they too are on a journey that, that needs to be fulfilling for them. You've given us so much there to unpack, but I agree with you with building the team and you've done that exceedingly well. Can you give us just in closing, we call it our physician curbside, three takeaways of leadership that you would give to the listening audience? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, it's clear that um, you will never have complete information. So um, be comfortable making decisions. It's okay to be wrong. Nothing, it's rare that the decision is so irrevocable that you can't go back or you can't pivot. So be comfortable making decisions without complete information. Um, get the right people around you who can help you get the experts. Most of them are at the bedside. Some of them are in the finance department and listen to them because they know what's working and what isn't working well. Uh, and I would just end with saying that, um, you know, whatever you do, you're going to have to communicate and there's no way that you can ever communicate enough, right? And that's walking the gamba, being out there, talking to people, um, emailing, you know, podcasts, um, you know, audit forums in an auditorium, small group meetings, one-on-ones, communicate, communicate, communicate. Well, thank you so much for coming on here and for giving us your insights and your wisdom. This was a great episode and we have enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you, Adrian. No, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a lot of fun and uh, I look forward to connecting with both of you again in the future. Thank you, Adrian, for joining us. So if other people would like to connect with you, what's the best way to do so? Yeah, I, I mean, I think anybody, everyone's welcome to reach out. I think realistically, LinkedIn is probably the easiest way to connect and, uh, you know, connect with me. Uh, I'll respond back and we can then chat through LinkedIn. And, and, and then if we if we need to, I'm happy to then, you know, set up a time we can chat more. And stuff. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, Beyond the Frontline Lessons from Healthcare Leaders. Please like, share, and subscribe. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Health Leadership Brain Trust and let us know if you have any topics that you would like to hear about on future podcasts. See you next episode.